0: This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes.
1: Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett coming to you from the 3rd floor, my office, CBS News headquarters, Washington D.C. Different kind of show this week. My interview, the first on television with John Hinckley Jr. For those of you who don't know, on March 30th, 1981, Hinckley attempted to assassinate President Ronald Reagan. He wounded the president and three others: White House Press Secretary James Brady, D.C. Police Officer Thomas Delahante and Secret Service Officer Tim McCarthy. We share this interview with you not to glorify John Hinckley or to give him a platform, but to explore lots of issues, delusion, mental illness, gun control, violence. You should know that Hinckley was tried and found innocent by reason of insanity. That changed insanity defense laws in our country. It also changed the way this assassination attempt, the way presidents are protected. It changed many things. Hinckley is a historical figure. We bring the conversation to you starting on that fateful day, March 30th.
0: 1981. This is Reed Collins, CBS News in New York. Shots have been fired at President Reagan, who had just concluded a speech in a Washington hotel to a union meeting. The White House says the president was not hit.
1: My colleague Lem Tucker is on the scene. Lem, you're in Washington. I don't know where, but what do you know and what did you see? Reed, I am a... This is Lem Tucker. I am right across the street from the ballroom entrance of the Hilton Hotel... Ronald
0: Reagan had just finished about a 30-minute speech to an AFL-CIO meeting. He was leaving through what we call in the press the presidential entrance. He, it was about a 30-foot walk to his car, less maybe. He turned to wave, and I believe a reporter called
1: out Mr. Reagan. The crowd was mixed, not just press people, and suddenly we heard the
2: pop. I, I went to the, the Washington Hilton him. Hotel and he came out from giving a speech and I was right there and I fired shots at him which so unfortunately hit other people too. Um, so the whole thing was just, yeah, it was planned, planned out.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you have any recollection of that feeling at that moment?
2: No. None. I don't it's such, it's such another lifetime ago. I don't I don't I can't I can't tell you now the emotion I had, you know, right as he came walking out. I just can't tell you that.
1: Mhm. But mostly that is something you can't remember. Right. Because you don't want to remember.
2: Maybe, but you're right, it's something that I, did, I don't want to remember. Yeah. It was all just so
1: traumatic for so many people. For so long. Yes. Who is John Hinckley?
2: Who is he? Mm-hmm. He's a man who's now a trying to be a singer songwriter. I spent forty one years trying to gain my freedom and on Wednesday of last week I did gain my freedom. Only took forty one years, but I did get the freedom. So I'm a person trying just trying to now become a good citizen and show show the world that I'm not the person that I was 41 years ago.
1: Since you brought it up in that context, who was that person?
2: Well, 41 years ago, in 1981, I was. I had a serious mental illness. I mean, I'll be the first to say that. I had a very serious mental illness, Depre- depression being the main thing. Um, and that's what led to my crime, was mental illness. And that's why we had the trial where I pleaded insanity and I ultimately was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Sent the next day, I believe, to St. Elizabeth's Hospital in DC. In 2016, uh, I was released on what they call convalescent leave to my home here in Williamsburg to live with my mother at the time. Um so I've been I've I've been Quote a free man since 2016, but I had, I had a lot of stipulations. I had about 37 court stipulations I had to, I had to follow. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of tough, but um, gradually those were those were removed. And I believe it was in September of last year that the judge said, "I'll, I'll give you an unconditional release if you do good for the next nine months." Mm-hmm. And, I did. What does freedom feel like? Feels great, you know. For forty-one years, I've just had—I've had to walk the line with everything. I've been the most scrutinized person um, in the entire mental health system for forty-one years. Even my judge said that. Now I just—I can finally ex- exhale. I finally have freedom.
1: Do you feel that scrutiny was unfair? No, I
2: don't. I mean, I I understand because it was such a serious crime. So I I understand why I had the scrutiny, Um, but I don't think I'd be sitting here today with you if I didn't just just dot every I and cross every T and just do everything perfectly all along the way. Uh, Of course, I had help of a lot of people. I didn't do it on my own, but, uh, yeah, I I don't think the scrutiny was unfair.
1: What are your memories of that John Hinckley from 1981?
2: I was, t- I was isolated, that was the main thing. I was isolated from my family, and that was not
1: good. Did you isolate yourself?
2: Yes. Why? I had, I had depression. I just, wanted, I just wanted to go within, but with my depression. And uh, I guess I just got estranged from my family, and of course that led to more depression and isolation. I had delusions. Um, and, you know, it's, it's so long ago now, I just, I can't relate to who that person was. I really can't. Um, it's, it's, it's that old, it's that saying that you hear, you know, what, what were you thinking? Like, the things I did back then, is like, what were you, John? Now I would say, what were you thinking, you know? But it, it was, it was mental illness.
1: Let's carry that thought a, a step further if possible. Sometimes, Adults want to say something to their younger selves. Like, what would you say to the younger John Hinckley, that depressed, isolated person, if you could talk to that person now?
2: Uh, the main thing would be listen to your parents. You know, I, I, was, I was one of these rebellious kids who, who went against my father's wishes and mostly my mother's wishes. So the main thing I would be, say was to listen to your parents and... Welcome the support of your family instead of pushing them away, which I which I did forty one years ago.
1: A lot of kids are rebellious. I know, but they don't do what you did.
2: Well, I was sick. I was I had I had a serious mental illness.
1: And how would you say the process at Saint Elizabeth's got to got you to where you are now?
2: Well, over the course of Four decades I had a lot of therapies. I mean I I've been in hundreds, maybe thousands of therapies, individual and group. Uh I always pe- when people ask me what's the one thing that you think got you well, I don't I don't say St. Elizabeth's. I uh I say Leslie DeVoe. Um I was in a relationship with Leslie DeVoe for 22 years while I was at St. Elizabeth's. And she's the person that I credit for for bringing bringing me back to um, my sanity.
1: For those in my audience who don't know who she is, who is she?
2: She was a patient at Saint Elizabeth's. Also, she was there for killing her daughter, I believe, in 1982. That's the year I I went to Saint Elizabeth's. So we we were both there the same year. I met her just at a little party on on the ward. We developed a relationship, and and it lasted 22 years. Um, so yeah, she's the person who who most got me well. Because she brought me back to reality. I had delusions and depression, and when I was with her, I didn't have that depression. And she would she would correct me when I would say something weird or you know with my delusions. She said no, that's you know she 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 had re- she had regained her sanity quickly, and so she just led me to start thinking cl- more clearly and um come out mainly come out of the depression that I was that i was in
1: did she make you feel loved yes, did your parents make you feel loved
2: um they they did i mean it was it was my fault back then that I was pushing them away they they certainly weren't pushing me away. And all through my years of confinement, they never, they never pushed me away. They, they always supported me all the way
1: through. What about your life, John, informs your art now? Because um, I, I believe artists draw on everything, not just the present.
2: I just think it's my whole life experience. You know, it's so unusual that I mean, I don't know anybody else who's certainly had a life like I've had. And my songs now, I mean, when I, I tell people now, if you want to get to know John Hinckley, listen to his songs. Listen to my songs. Because sometimes I don't quite express myself that well just talking to somebody, but I, I think I express myself very well in my songs. And the songs are uplifting and inspirational type songs.
1: Do you think you're better than you were when you tried this out in L.A.?
2: Better? Oh, Yes. I think I'm a much better songwriter. <clears throat> I was in LA back in the 70s trying to be a songwriter and but my illness was getting in the way of everything. I couldn't I couldn't do it the right way and it, I just it got nowhere.
1: We recorded our interview with Hinckley in a conference room at a hotel in Williamsburg, Virginia, where he is currently living. More of our conversation with John Hinckley when The Takeout returns. Segment two coming up by Major Garrett. This is The Takeout, my first television interview with John Hinckley Jr.
0: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. From CBS News, this is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. Continuing my interview, the first on television with John Hinckley Jr. Now, he wanted to talk a lot about the present, not the past. But I required of him that we do talk about the past. But the present he wanted to discuss was his life now, he hopes, as a singer-songwriter. He had three events, three small concerts booked, but they were all canceled. Due to concerns over safety, we begin our conversation delving into that.
2: I, more than anyone, was concerned about security at the event. I, I talked to the promoter
1: of the show over and over
2: about security.
1: Your, sc- your security or theirs?
2: Mine and the audience. What were you afraid of? I, just I, nothing specifically, but we're you know, the, as you well know, the environment of the country right now is not good and um, I just wanted everybody to be safe and so I brought this up time and again with the promoter and he assured me the concert would be safe they would beef up their security things like this so I was starting to feel good about it but then on last Wednesday the market hotel was pulled out uh,
1: is one of the reasons you're sitting down with me to try to soften the public perception of you? yes
2: I've had a very, you know, a bad, bad perception out there, a bad image for 41 years, and I'm just trying to show people I'm kind of an ordinary, ordinary guy who's just trying to get along like everybody else. And I do. I mean, I try to do everything so carefully, and that's what I'm trying to get out to the audience: is you know, if you if you just think that I'm just some crazy person, I'm not that anymore at all.
1: I'm going to give you an opportunity to say as directly as you can, with as much emotion as you can bring to bear, what you're sorry for and why.
2: Well, I am sorry for what I did in 1981. What did you do? I shot four people. Um, and I'm sorry to the Reagan family, the Brady family, the the other families of the victims. I'm sorry to Jody Foster for bringing her into this. I'm, I'm very sorry about that.
1: Why are you sorry?
2: Because uh, she didn't deserve it. you know I brought I brought Jodie Foster into an ugly situation and she just did not deserve it at all. and I, I feel I feel badly about that.
1: What about the Reagans?
2: I feel badly for all of them. I mean I mean I have true remorse for what I did and I, I've expressed that in the past and I'll express it again here that I have true remorse for what I did. I know that, I know that they probably can't forgive me now. But I just want them to know that I am sorry for what I did.
1: Have you ever thought about what would have happened had you succeeded?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, history would have been changed with the, you know, a new president. That's it. If I succeeded with the crime, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would have been a big historical <laughs> event. Um. I'm glad I did not succeed. You are? Oh yes, very much so.
1: You traumatized a nation too. I did. Are you sorry for that?
2: Yes, I am. You know, anytime anytime an assassination attempt happens, of course it's a major, major event. So I'm sure the country was traumatized. I'm very sorry for that.
1: Is there any part of you that wonders how the John Hinckley of that era could have gotten to that point?
2: I did not have a good heart. Uh, I was doing things that, you know, a good person doesn't do. So it's hard for me to, at all, to relate at all to that person back then.
1: Were you angry at President Reagan? Oh, no,
2: no, I, I thought he was a good president.
1: So what was it about? Was it about gaining notoriety? To make yourself well, a I, I famous had to, person. Well,
2: I—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, it's hard for me to say it now because it's just so, such a wild notion. But I thought by by shooting the president, I was going to impress Jodie Foster. And of course, saying that now, it's like what? What? No. But that's what I was thinking back. That's—that's that's how delusional I was in my head back in 1981.
1: Do you remember the point, John, when you snapped out of that? When you stopped having that set of specific delusions.
2: Well, it wasn't on a specific day that I just snapped out of it. It was over. It was over time, and uh, through therapies, and as I said, with with the help of Leslie Devoe, and with the help of my family, definitely my family, I gradually came out of came out of it.
1: Do you think you were well enough to be given your freedom long before you actually obtained it? Yes. How long? How long do you think you've been waiting? Well enough to be free, but not free.
2: Um. Well.
1: Five years. Ten years. Maybe
2: ten to fifteen years ago, I could I could have gotten my freedom.
1: Do you understand why you didn't? I didn't. I mean, I'm sorry. You didn't, or you did?
2: I did understand why. What I why I didn't get the freedom back then. I mean, my judge. I must tell you, my judge was very fair to me. I must say that on the record. I think my judge was very fair to me over the years, and he gave me incremental steps, just to see how I would do. And as I kept doing well, he kept giving me more and more freedom. But I understand why he had to do it that way. He couldn't just say, you know, 20 years ago, you're free. I understand why he did that.
1: Mm -hmm. For the fans who wanna buy tickets, what do you think they're coming to see? Do you think they're curious about what this person is? or do you think they're actually drawn to what they've heard?
2: It's both. I mean, I do actually have fans who like my music because I get, those, I get comments all the time, either on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel, mm-hmm. either on my YouTube channel or on my Twitter feed. I, I do have fans that listen to my songs on Spotify mainly and like my music and therefore they, they would come to a concert to hear my music.
1: But they're also the curiosity.
2: Curio- curious man, just, just you know, to see me in person. This person they've heard about all these years.
1: Would it be too far to say that there's a freak show component to that?
2: I wouldn't use that term, but if, you know, it could be something, something similar to that. Yeah.
1: Super curiosity. Yes. You talked about your heart a moment ago. Um, for some people, they regain the sense of their heart and uh through religion? Or do you consider yourself in any way religious?
2: Yes. I believe in God, I believe in Jesus.
1: And did any scripture or text help you, uh, reassure you, pull you in a different direction?
2: Not anyone in particular, but I just, I just have the belief that God pulled me through a lot of bad situations. You know, b- back in the 80s, I had some suicide attempts that I really shouldn't have survived. You did? Yeah, I, I had some serious suicide attempts early in my stay at St. Elizabeth's.
1: This is before the assassination attempt?
2: No, this is right after the assassination. Okay, but
1: you didn't try to kill yourself before that?
2: No, I don't believe so.
1: In your depression and isolation? I don't believe so. Okay.
2: But right after I went to St. Elizabeth's, I think I had two, two suicide attempts. Where I, you know I, I, I really shouldn't have survived and I think God pulled me through I, I, I'll say that to my dying day
1: how did you try to kill yourself
2: uh, one was a hanging and one was an overdose of pills and it, they, they were both serious attempts they weren't just gestures
1: you weren't trying to get attention you were trying to kill yourself
2: oh yeah they were they were serious um, but this this is this is like in 1982 and 83. When I was still, when I still had the depression and the, and the.
1: Were you trying to kill yourself out of remorse and regret? Somewhat, yeah. Sense of guilt?
2: Yes, probably. But I, I, I just still, I still had that depression back then.
1: For what it's worth, I did not find John Hinckley Jr. to be threatening. I'm not an expert in this field. You can judge him and his answers for yourself. But clearly, he spoke of depression going into St. Elizabeth's and a sense of recovery coming out. More of our conversation with John Hinckley when the takeout continues.
0: Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. Shoppers get it. From CBS News, this is the takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to the takeout on Major Garrett, continuing my conversation, the first on television with John Hinckley Jr. Among the topics you're going to hear discussed in this segment is at one point, John Hinckley Jr. told me he was concerned about the state of America, where its mind was collectively, if you will. We tried to explore that. Plus, I asked him about the price and the cost of infamy and what he thinks about it looking back. Our conversation continues. What did you mean by that, and what do you see?
2: Well, I watch the news. You know, I watch the news like everybody else, and and it's it's in one of my songs, the line, the world is so crazy now, it's hard to watch TV. And what I mean by that is just watching the news now, it's just, there's just so much uh, negativity going on so much violence, and yeah, it's just, the, the, I think the climate of the country right now is just not good at all.
1: It feels like a more violent place. It feels like a, like a more, does it feel like, I don't want to put words no, in No, your you're mouth.
2: saying it like I would say it, and I do, I do think that is the main reason Market Hotel pulled out, is I think they said it in their statement. I, not exactly like this, but the mood of the country is so bad now that we don't want to risk having this show right
1: now? You're not in any way obligated to answer this question, but if you watch the news, uh, you know that in our very recent past, meaning like a couple of three weeks ago, but also over the last couple of years, young men, isolated, angry, have armed themselves and committed horrific crimes. Some of them racially motivated, some of them not. Again, you're not obligated to offer an opinion on that. but. For those who might be listening, who feel isolated, who feel like they might be trending in that direction, is there anything you would want to say, or contextualize for them about the life on the other side of doing something horrible with depression or isolation?
2: I would say get back to your parent, get back to your family, and get back to God if you can. Um, I mean the the two the two incidents that, you, that I think of that were recent were. I think the shooters were eighteen years old, yes. yes, and they they had so much pathology going in their head that they they did what they did um at eighteen years of age it just it just blows your mind. I don't know the story of either one of them, but I'm sure they both got separated from their families' support and love, and they had to have been they had to have been away from God, in my opinion.
1: Infamy does bring attention, brings notoriety. You're famous in part because you're infamous. Was it worth it, or would you say to someone who's thinking, "Well, I may be, I may be a nobody, but I can be somebody if I do something"? What would you I, tell I, them? I
2: would say it's not worth it. It's uh, not worth, about I have, the price of infamy. It's not. I, it's not worth. If you if you want to commit a major crime to become famous or infamous, I, I'm telling you right now, it's not worth it because. I got all the all the infamy and and the fame, and you know for so many years I just wanted to do just uh, not just blend in and not stick out and have everybody just be so scrutinized and everybody staring at me all the time. So I believe you know I, if, if people are trying to seek fame for for trying to if they're going to commit a crime trying to seek fame I would say don't do it do not do it.
1: Have you ever cried over this?
2: Oh, sure. Yes, not. I can't. To be honest, not recently, but yes, I have. Uh.
1: Do you get triggered by things—songs, to events, to anniversaries? Does any—is there anything that you sort of have to tiptoe around?
2: Not in, in your not, in
1: your planning and the way you approach the the life you're living now.
2: I don't. I don't have that problem now, but but in the, in the years past. Um, yeah, I mean, anniversaries would just make me dwell on the...
1: Which kind? The anniversary of the crime?
2: Of the crime, um, but that's written in the distant past. I don't have that anymore. I mean, I think of the crime as just something that, ha- this, that happened in such, the, such a the distant past that, um, you know, when March 30th arrives, I, I don't, I don't even, you know, I just, it just comes and goes
1: would you consider yourself a gun control advocate or would you say anything about the proliferation of guns in America right now?
2: Well, if anything, I'm a gun control advocate. There's too many guns in America. So in that, I'm kind of a gun control advocate. Um,
1: and you're an example of someone who went before the court and said, I have a serious mental illness and therefore I should be treated differently in the criminal justice system. We're having a big conversation in our country right now about mental illness, taking away some of the stigma, understanding that it's a continuum of diseases. What are your thoughts about that? How we talk about it or don't talk about it? How we treat it or don't treat it? What would your commentary, if any, be on that?
2: There's still somewhat of a stigma about mental illness. My father actually, after the shooting, he started the American Mental Health Fund to raise money to try and try and combat the, the stigma of mental illness. He put a lot of time and work into this, and uh, to the, and he passed in two thousand eight. I still think there's some 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 stig, stigma about mental illness, um, but I think more money needs to be put towards mental illness research and helping the mentally
1: ill. If you can recall back at the time, did you think there was anything out there that could help you? Did you feel helpless? Yes. When you were depressed and isolated? Yes, I did. That there was nowhere to turn?
2: In my my mind, I felt that way, yes.
1: Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you this, because it's part of the lore, but I want to ask the only person who knows for sure. Was Taxi Driver a really big part of this, the movie?
2: It was, maybe not as big as people made it out to be, but but back in, nineteen, I believe it was 1976 mm-hmm. when the movie came out, I was living in Los Angeles in Hollywood and it was showing in one of the theaters and I think I saw it about 15 times. So I was really fixated on this movie and that's how I got the, the Jodie Foster connection right. was through the movie. She's in the movie. Yes, of course. Um,
1: and you, did you identify with Travis Bickle? I did,
2: I did. Um, I can't say that's the only reason that the crime no. happened, but it certainly contributed to it, yes. Mm-hmm.
1: And what some people may not know about that movie, I'm kind of a fan of that movie, uh, was then, am now, the end is a redemption story. Travis Bickle rescues Jodie Foster, it is perceived by her parents, the tabloids in New York cover it as a hero story. So Travis Bickle is kind of a strange, in-between hero right. in that movie. Did that in any way make an impression on you?
2: Back then, yes it did, I'm sure. Um, I just was, you know, as I said, with with the shooting I, I was hoping to impress Jodie Foster in by have have like some magical union with her, um, which which parallels the movie is a little bit, but
1: a little bit, yeah. You once described it as the greatest love offering in the history of the earth, or something to that. A history of mankind.
2: <laughs> you, do, hyperbole. Do you stand by that? No, I do not stand by that at all.
1: You can see how some people might be a little put off by that.
2: Well, I'm put. I'm I'm put off by it.
1: You can hear in John Hinckley's voice a sense of self-awareness that some of the quotes he's given, even in recent times, don't even ring true to him. I try to get that self-awareness out of him as best I could. Our conversation with John Hinckley Jr. continues. I'm Major Garrett. This is a special episode of The Takeout. Back for segment four in just one moment. Man, that sunset is
0: CBS News. This is The Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome back to The Takeout. In this segment, I asked John Hinckley Jr. about that word often used, closure. Closure with the families he victimized. Here's a response plus other topics on our conversation with John Hinckley Jr. Do you think you'll ever have a chance to get closure with them?
2: I don't know. I mean, for, see, up until till now, um, one of my court stipulations was that I couldn't contact the families. It was not like I was just cold hearted and didn't want to do it, but I had that stipulation that I couldn't do it. Um, I don't think they want to hear from me, to be honest. Would
1: you like them to consider forgiving you?
2: Yes. They probably can't, but I wish I wish they would.
1: Do you want to give them a reason to?
2: Because I, I just, as I've said, I feel terrib- terrible for what I did, and I've, I've had remorse for many years for what I did, and if I could take it all back, I would. I swear, I would take it all back, to, you know, to bring so much pain, especially to the Brady family. I would take it all back if I could.
1: If I have it correctly, John, while you were at St. Elizabeth's, you wrote some letters to some pretty nasty people. Other killers, is that true?
2: Um, I think I did, yes.
1: What was that about?
2: That was part of my illness. I thought, I thought they at the time I thought they were people that I wanted to speak to. Maybe as you know, uh, someone infamous reaching out to somebody else infamous. Part of the club. Yeah, but it, it just, it's, it's this terrible judgment. I i should never have done That's very bad judgment. Well, that was in the early to mid 80s. Right. And it just showed that I, back then I had really bad judgment.
1: Mm-hmm. You regret that too?
2: Oh, yeah, totally.
1: Because you were still obviously thinking about yourself in the infamy club.
2: Right. That's that's a good way of putting it. Bad club. That's a good way of putting it.
1: It's a bad club. Yes, it is. Don't go into it.
2: No. Good you know. mom.
1: Um, how is your day-to-day life now? What, 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 what? what how, how does freedom manifest for you right now?
2: Well, I'm, I'm. You know, my mother passed about a year ago mm-hmm. in July of last year. That must have been hard on you. She was 95 years old. Yes, it was hard because she devoted her life to me uh, in so many ways. But she had a long, steady decline in her health. She finally passed at the age of ninety-five, and so um, we we eventually sold the house, and now I'm living in an apartment here in town, here in Williamsburg. It's it's just a little modest one-bedroom apartment. I, I have a cat named Theo; he's my best friend. Um, but mainly throughout the day, I'm I'm either into my music, writing songs, or or Listening to music, I don't watch a whole lot of TV, to be honest.
1: But you do watch the news.
2: I do. I watch. I watch the six thirty evening news. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and then you know, I, I'm also a painter. I do. I, I, make, I make paintings and sell my paintings sometimes. Mm-hmm. But lately, I've, lately I've been so focused on my music, I've kind of gotten away from the painting.
1: Mm-hmm. Does this feel this modern world, feel jarring to you?
2: I'm not sure or "jarring" is the right word. Um, it's just not just me, but everybody going to be careful now in, in this world because there's just there's just so much around us that that you need to watch out for. I what, mean, I live. What, what do you mean? I, well, I live in in a kind of a quaint little town of Williamsburg, mm-hmm. where where there's not a whole lot of crime and I can kind of blend in with everybody and that's why I like it here. I get noticed occasionally, but mainly I can blend in and and live a quiet life. But if you're in a major city, especially New York City, it is dangerous. It's dangerous, at least least in my opinion. I've been asked, you know, why don't you move to New York City, you know, to to help with your music career? I say, no, I can't do that. I can't live in New York City. it would, it would put me in danger.
1: Mm-hmm. But you want to tour, if you can.
2: I did. Um, but I just had a talk with my attorney attorney about a week ago, and we were both kind of agreeing that the notion of touring now, um, it's a bad time for me to try and be on tour and play different cities around the country because my safety would just always be an issue and the safety of the crowd too
1: mhm but for the foreseeable future public events are out yeah they are let me ask you this um you spoke very lovingly of course of your mother and 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 your father supported you while he he yes, was he did. living yes, he did. how long did it take you to apologize to them
2: i did that early on i did that can you define early on um I would say shortly after the shooting, you know, I apologized to them. I just, you know, Do you remember
1: that, what, yes. what, what that was like?
2: They, were just, they had just come to visit me at, at the hospital, and just sitting in a little barren room, I, yeah, I apologized to them and said, I'm so sorry for doing this to our family.
1: Again, I'm not trying to over-emote this, but if, if I think about that, that would have been a time I would have broken down. I'd have cried. Did you?
2: Uh, I think I did I can't I think I did I think they did too
1: that has to be right near the top of your regrets putting them through that
2: yes putting my family through that
1: because they were out there too oh yes the rest of their lives
2: and they devoted they they devoted so much time and effort and money to getting me to where I am today they really did
1: that sounds almost saintly to me.
2: Well, my mother and father were saints in many ways.
1: To you? Yes. Do you go to church now? I don't go to church. Because it's a public Yeah, scrutiny that's the main thing.
2: reason. Um, I pray every night. I have a good relationship with God, I believe.
1: You've asked God for forgiveness? Oh, yes. Many times? Many. Is that a painful process for you or a redemptive process?
2: Uh, it's not painful. It's just I just, in my prayers, I ask for forgiveness. And, uh, you know, I pray for the f- families of the victims. and uh,
1: To this day, you do um, that? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. For our radio audience, we need to bid you farewell. For those watching on CBS News streaming and listening on all our podcast platforms, please stay tuned for the Takeout Outtake Special. And again, a quick reminder. This conversation, the first on broadcast television with John Hinckley Jr., was meant to explore a wide range of issues and to interact with this historical figure, one of infamy, one who has recollections and thoughts about what the price of infamy actually is, how he hopes he is recovered, how he believes that person he was in 1981 no longer exists. I'm Major Garrett. This has been The Takeout. We'll see you next week.
0: From CBS News. This is the Takeout
1: with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett, continuing my conversation the first on television with John Hinckley Jr. In this conversation, we talk about the present, about Hinckley's aspirations, such as they are, to be a singer, songwriter, and a performer. Also, how he's living with his just-achieved freedom, one granted to him by a judge after some 41 years under very, very close scrutiny by the U.S. justice system and the mental health aspects of it. We start our conversation with that, his freedom and how he adjusts to it, and then we explore his life right now, possibly as a singer-songwriter, and you'll also hear who his favorite artists are and who he would like to cover some of his songs. Do you have any afflictions now, addictions or anything that you are trying to wrestle with in any way? No. No? No, not at all. Are you medicated at all?
2: I'm on, I'm on two, two psychotropic medications, yes.
1: How are they working?
2: They work fine. And I, I, I've told uh, my doctors and family that even after I get the unconditional release, I'm still going to take my meds because I do think they help. And that's the truth. I am still going to take my meds.
1: And for those who are troubled by insanity as a defense, what would you tell them? Because there are some who believe you should have just been in jail, in prison for the rest of your life, and never let out under any circumstances.
2: Right. Um, I would say the insanity defense is a valid defense. Um, I think it can be misused by certain people and certain lawyers, I I believe that, but I do think it's a valid defense, and in my case, I certainly think it was valid.
1: Because in that moment, you didn't know who you were or what you were, you were like a unrecognizable person. Yes. Driven by this mania. Yes. It's also been said, and I wanna ask you, because I don't know if it's true, did you also trail President Carter?
2: Uh, Very briefly, yeah, I mean, I don't have good recollections about it but in 1980 when he was when he was running for president
1: running for re-election right, right
2: there was I think one event where I was at the event but I've I, I was unarmed so it was not like you know something could have happened
1: Mhm Was that time you were with Reagan that March 30th the first time you were in the presence of a president and armed
2: Yes Yes
1: And did that go as you thought it would go I yes, mean that, yes is say, that is to say that is say you you put yourself in a position, you had an expectation he would come out. Did it did it happen the way you thought it would?
2: I was I, I guess it did you know. Um, you, know. you you'd
1: obviously planned for it. You you put yourself right. in a specific place at a specific time, with an act, expectation the president would walk out.
2: Right. Well, as I said earlier, I I I I thought. President Reagan was a a nice man and a good president, so that's where the illness comes in. The
1: first crime in your life was attempting to assassinate the president of the United States? Yes. Wow. That's heavy. It's
2: my first crime and my last crime.
1: There'll be no more?
2: There'll be no more.
1: Who are your favorite songwriters?
2: Uh, over, over my lifetime, Bob Dylan was my biggest influence as far as writing songs. Of course, the Beatles, uh, way back in 64 when they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. That's when I started my interest in music. I was only eight years old, but from that point on, I was really into music. Uh,
1: and when, when were you in L.A.? That, what part of the 70s?
2: 76.
1: Yeah, so there were some pretty heavy songwriters there doing some amazing right. stuff.
2: Right, I mean, I wish I so wish Jackson I could. Brown and yes. and,
1: and, uh, uh, and Neil Young Neil Young and the Eagles Crosby. I mean, there was there was a, a great collection of music running through L.A. at about that time.
2: I wish I could have gotten in on that, but I just my illness was preventing it.
1: Mm-hmm. And you weren't that good.
2: You're probably right. Yeah. I mean, you're probably right
1: because you said you're better now. Yeah,
2: I'm much better. I think I can write a good song now. I do.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you hope somebody covers them?
2: Some they are being they're being covered now. I mean, not by famous people, but I would like some some notable artists to cover them, sure. Yeah, that'd be great.
1: Who would make you happiest to have cover your one of your songs?
2: Oh my god. Bob Dylan.
1: <laughs> okay. Next? Neil Young. Okay.
2: Oh gosh. Maybe certain bands that I like. Like um I like a band called Neutral Milk Hotel. I mean, they're they're kind of obscure, but they put out a great album that I've always liked, and I wish they could cover some some of my stuff.
1: What's your favorite Dylan song?
2: Oh, that's that's a hard question.
1: It's a hard question. Not easy.
2: Maybe the times they are changing. Mm-hmm. That that whole album is just fantastic.
1: Mm-hmm. There's a part of your life for which that's true. Oh yes. The times have changed.
2: Yes, yes they have.
1: And you have. Oh yes. Truly.
2: Truly, truly I've changed. For good. Yes.
1: That person will never come back.
2: No, he will not.
1: Psychologically that person is dead.
2: Psychologically, that person is dead. I'm a completely different person in
1: mind and spirit. And that is it for this episode of the Takeout and the Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. We'll see you next week. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen,
0: and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanan. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News.
1: If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com
0: early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.